This is The Guardian. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Before COP began, the UK government promised it was going to be the most inclusive yet. Lots of attendees have felt quite the opposite, including the Indian delegates. Access to the venue remains challenging and we feel that the Scottish Events Campus is the least accessible COP venues in recent memory. As well as trouble getting into the venue, many leaders, activists and civil society participants who might usually go to COP haven't been able to this year because of costs, COVID restrictions and exclusions put on who can attend the negotiations. One delegation who have been included in talks are the fossil fuel industry. 503 representatives. More than any single country. On Sunday, whilst COP26 took its rest day, an alternative summit kicked off all around Glasgow. What? <laughs> what? I got the mic. Events giving a platform to people who are not usually handed the mic. First, I'd like to uh, sing a song. I'm kidding. I like humour, right? From places most impacted by the climate crisis. So, I come from uh, Turtle Island. My name is Nishinibi Ikwe. That means second water woman. We tell about our lineage line of our history. And without that history, we wouldn't know where we're going to because we didn't know where we came from. Does that make sense? From The Guardian, I'm Madeline Finlay, and this is Science Weekly. COP26 Day 8, hearing solutions from those on the front line. On Sunday, I joined Guardian reporter Nina Lakani for the People's Summit, 
One of its co-founders is Assad Raymond. The history of humanity is the history of people taking collective action together. We have won nothing where it's just been handed down to us. People said that the walls of apartheid would never fall. It took action both by the people of South Africa and people acting in solidarity. The right to vote, the right to join a union. It is absolutely important that we send a strong message and we send a strong message by taking to the streets. But it's not simply about taking to the streets. We also need to have the plans and policies and we need to have the campaigns to put those into effect. Asad, today's the first day of the People's Summit, the counter-summit to COP26 here in Glasgow. Tell us, um, what is the People's Summit and why have you organised it? We might be locked out of the negotiation rooms, we might be locked out of the venue, but this is a space where our movements, our climate scientists, our thinkers, our progressive politicians come together, strategising and discuss how are we dealing with these multiple crises, what are going to be our strategies to go forward, how do we do this, how do you transition energy when half the world has got a lack of uh, access to energy and still we remain within planetary limits. What does that mean? That means energy is a public good. How do we equitably distribute that? What does the carbon budget mean between rich and poor countries? How do we manage and balance the issue of survival versus development when so much of the world is locked into poverty and inequality? This is a place where those conversations are actually happening and we're building consensus about the solutions that are needed. Um, I've been reporting from inside of COP and outside of COP, you know, and inside it's sort of been quite depressing in many ways, you know, there's been a lack of energy, a lack of access, you know, is this going to provide a space for people to be heard and for, for solutions that don't involve corporations, you know, that aren't about market-led solutions. Look, the fact that we've got hundreds of events, the fact that we've got events that are taking place in person and online, the fact that people are able to engage and join those conversations is in marked contrast to the negotiations where it's absolutely right. People People are walking around feeling, what am I even doing here? I can't get into a negotiating room. I can't speak to negotiators. Announcements are being made willy-nilly by multinationals. They can't be interrogated. You might as well be spectators in that whole process. Anyone that attended a climate protest at the weekend will have heard a phrase being shouted, climate justice. But what does that mean? Historically, people, companies and countries in the global north have exploited resources and contributed far more to the climate crisis than others. But the impacts are disproportionately felt by those in the global south, people who are already facing social and economic injustices. Climate justice is about finding solutions that recognise these problems and fight for a fairer and more just world whilst reducing emissions at the same time. Nina has spent years reporting on these issues, so I asked how she sees climate justice. It's really getting away from thinking about climate change as a conservation environmentalism perspective and really putting equality, equity and inclusion at the heart of thinking about the climate crisis. The climate crisis, global heating, is causing extreme weather events which are being suffered more by communities who are living, you know, on the breadline, basically, who live off the land. And that is forcing people, because of water shortages or because of there's too much water, because of mudslides and landslides, to, to leave their home. And so you can't really think about climate change and climate action without thinking about all of these factors, both in the causes, but also in how we're going to deal with it. 
what does this look like in reality? At a panel on Sunday, I heard an example of where climate justice hasn't been part of the conversation. I am Yvonne Yanez from Acción Ecológica in Ecuador. Yvonne Yanez told a story to from a community in Ecuador. The community lived on lush, marshy wetlands, which provided their fresh water. They were approached by a carbon offset organisation and offered money to plant a pine forest. And they said, OK, we are going to give you $13,000 to offset CO2 emissions from the global north. Make a plantation of pines. Perhaps an airline or shop or food company that you recognise providing a so-called net-zero product. The offer caused some infighting, but for a poor community, such a large amount of money was too good an offer to pass over. So they planted the forest. But pine trees are water-intensive, and soon the community found that they were facing a water scarcity. The community in Ecuador is losing the water because the pines absorb a lot of water and the community is having a scarcity of water. To bring the water back, they held a special ceremony, during which the forest caught fire and burned down. The community's lands were destroyed. And when the carbon offsetting organisation discovered the pine trees were gone, they tried to sue the community for destroying their asset. Do you think that this is fair? It's not fair at all. Not only that I asked Nina if this felt like a familiar story. Carbon offset markets pose one of the biggest threats to the survival of indigenous and rural peoples and to the survival of our biodiversity. Now, carbon offset markets are being painted as exactly the opposite of that, but what we're talking about is a false solution, right? So, you know, it's one of these key nature-based solutions, right? Carbon sinks, carbon offsetting. And part of that is this 30 by 30 pledge. 30% of the world's land and oceans designated as protected areas by 2030. Sounds great, sounds harmless, but what does it actually mean? It means that huge amounts of forest and grasslands relied upon for food, shelter, medicines, spiritual and cultural traditions by um, vulnerable and indigenous peoples across the world are at threat of land grabs, are at threat of being taken away so that monocrops, trees, pines, palms, tea, all sorts of non-indigenous, non-native species can be planted on a huge scale so that rich countries in the global north and big polluting corporations can continue to pollute and offset their carbon emissions rather than stopping polluting. And as one person described to me um, last week, it is the next phase of climate denialism. This is mitigation denialism. What this does is say, okay, we've created this massive problem we do we we don't want to change our lifestyles we don't want to any any feel any pain for our people our voters in the global north so what we'll do is force people in the global south to create these mass forests as carbon sinks 
because 1.2 is already hell to us. Every time, every day. There was a young Ugandan activist called Patience who was speaking at a panel yesterday. She's one of the founders of Fridays for Future in Uganda. And she was saying, we need action now. We are suffering now. We don't need pledges for 2050. Stop promising. Because what you're pledging, I hear is for the next decade, pledging for 2050. What about 2021? What about now? And since Sunday, across the People Summit, there have been events where we've been hearing lots of solutions from Indigenous people and people on the front lines. What are some of the key issues and solutions that have been raised that you've heard? So land back, I mean, giving Indigenous people the land that has been stolen from them by colonialists and settlers for hundreds of years, removing dams that have caused a decline in biodiversity that have had huge impacts on fish stocks that have led to the contamination of rivers that have made them unusable. Yesterday I went to a panel about agroecology. Now agroecology, you know, was born out of Latin America. It's a sustainable way of small-scale farming, which is all about adapting to the local conditions that you're in the exact opposite of industrial farming where conditions everything has to be controlled there's a formula on how you produce crops and raise animals for meat 70 percent of the world's population is fed by small-scale farmers indigenous farmers using just 30 percent of the arable land you know whereas big industrialized agriculture feeds only 30 percent of the world's population that's completely crazy, right? If you actually sit down to think about that. You know, there are many indigenous communities, small-scale farmers, subsistence farmers, who have solutions, who are already implementing solutions, right? But they're on a very small scale because they can't get the support of governments because of the power and influence of big corporations. Nina, we're now heading into week two, the final week of COP26. How do you feel about where it's headed? I really fear that we're going to come out of this with a huge impetus towards carbon trading markets, to more hydroelectric dams, to more industrialised energy projects, which will lead to you know, further land grabs and human rights violations. If the negotiations end with really a big focus on market-based solutions, we're going to see climate chaos and climate breakdown accelerating over the next 10, 20 years um, and communities are already feeling an impact and we're just not going to achieve what we need to achieve, which is, you know, to stop burning fossil fuels. That's what needs to be done. I really fear that at the end of the second week of COP, we're not going to see enough commitments to achieve that. Nina, thank you so much. You're welcome. That's it for today. To keep up with our episodes, subscribe to Science Weekly on your preferred podcast app and head to theguardian.com for all our brilliant COP26 coverage. See you tomorrow. This is The Guardian. 
Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.